morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Wednesday, September 28th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Kenyan President William Ruto names his cabinet and adds a new portfolio. That office is probably the most senior office after the office of the president and deputy president. I have set out functions for that office. Architects blame corruption and the lack of regulation for building collapse in Kenya's capital. Sao Tome and Principe opposition leader says he won Sunday's parliamentary vote. Ebola cases and fatalities rise in Uganda. An international meeting in Nairobi stresses the importance of gathering gender-related statistics in Africa. Gambia's president tells his support for an independent judiciary. It's the environment where we are coming from. We have to be very, very tolerant. I think this government is very, very tolerant, and we make sure that we respect the rule of law. And the challenges facing the first woman mayor of Congo Brazzaville's second largest city, Pointe Noire. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. President William Ruto has named his cabinet two weeks after being sworn in as president. Ruto appointed former Deputy Prime Minister Musa Lia Mandavadi as Prime Cabinet Secretary, a new post that is not stipulated in the Kenyan Constitution. At the same time, Kenya's Inspector General of Police has written to the president to go on terminal leave because of illness as the Director of Criminal Investigation resigns from his post. Maureen Ojiambo reports. It was time for the cabinet secretaries who served in the former president Uhuru Kenyatta's government to leave office. The cabinet held a meeting in State House Nairobi a few hours before Ruto named a new cabinet secretary. Most cabinet secretaries were against a Ruto presidency and only three who served in Kenyatta's administration secured a slot in his cabinet. Ruto appointed former Deputy Prime Minister Masalia Mudavadi to serve as Prime Cabinet Secretary, a position that is not specified in the Kenyan constitution. He says Sadly, will oversee the government projects as well as coordinate national legislative agenda. That office is probably the most senior office after the office of the president and deputy president. And I have set out functions for that office. He will assist the president and deputy president in the coordination and supervision of government ministries and state departments. He will facilitate interministerial coordination of cross functional initiatives and programs and of course perform any other functions as I may assign him from time to time. The president had promised to give jobs to those who supported his bid for the presidency and those who lost in the general election were considered as well. Public service, gender and affirmative action, the Honorable Aisha Jumwa Katana, Ministry of Water, Sanitation and Irrigation, the Honorable Alice Mudoni Wahome, Minister for Foreign Affairs and Diaspora Affairs, the Honorable Alfred Mutua. Ruto had a strained relationship with the police bosses when he served as the deputy president in Kenyatta's administration. It is under these conditions that the director of criminal investigation, Judge Kinoti, resigned. Ruto had publicly questioned Kinoti's support for Ruto's opponent, and they just concluded general elections. Inspector General of Police Hilary Mutiambai also went on a terminal leave, citing health issues as Ruto appointed Japheth Kome to replace him. Ruto has since ordered 
ordered the appointment of an acting director of criminal investigation. I have received communication, Mr. Mutiambai, of his request to proceed on terminal leave uh, because of his uh, health situation. I have accepted that Mr. Mutiambai will proceed on terminal leave. I have also received the resignation of the Director General of CID and I have transmitted the same to the National Police Service to proceed with advertising that position. The names of all the 22 cabinet secretaries will now be forwarded to Parliament for vetting and approval. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Jembo in Nairobi, Kenya. Architects in Kenya are blaming corruption and unregulated construction for the collapse of a six-story building on Monday that killed five people, including two children, and injured scores of others. Victoria Amuga reports from Nairobi. The Monday tragedy at Kirigiti in Kenya's Kiambu County is the latest such fatal accident. Dozens of people have died in building collapses in Kenya, including at least three people in 2019 and 49 in a 2016 disaster. Kenya's architects say the construction industry has been mad with unscrupulous dealings that are compromising the quality of buildings. Wilson Mugambi is the president of the Architectural Association of Kenya. The framework is there to ensure that does not happen. So we have a very big gap, especially at the enforcement level, whereby the scrutiny of who is involved in a project at the design stage and execution is not being done well. The French news agency reports that Kenya is undergoing a construction boom, but corruption has allowed developers to cut corners to bypass laws. Mugambi says it's because costs are very high. A simple block of flats can easily cost you maybe 30 million. The cost of engaging professionals throughout the scope of the project is 10% of that, the average cost. And that is spread out from the design up to the handing over of the project. So technically, if you look at it, someone who's willing to spend 30 million or even say 20 to 30 million on a project, and spending that 2, 3 million on consultants should not be an issue. But we have a lot of people who think they know better. Kenya's construction approval is long. The law demands that a developer obtain approvals from a county government, National Environment Authority, and the National Construction Authority. It's a procedure that takes at least six months. Architect experts like Christopher Otieno say some are not willing to pay that price. Because uh, most people have done it without professionals and some buildings somehow have stood for uh, have this tendency that uh, give me the person, refer me to the person who helps you do this. So you find people referring quacks. And the circle continues. Some owners of collapsed buildings in Kenya have been arrested and charged in the past. But experts say until professionalism is put at the helm of construction, the problem may not be solved. Victoria Amunga for VOA News, Nairobi. Gambian President Adam Ambaro says his administration has accepted and will implement the recommendations of the so-called White Paper from the country's Truth, Reconciliation and Reparation Commission on the financial dealings of former President Yaya Jaman's government. Speaking with VOS Peter Clotty on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly in New York, President Barrow also said that unlike past Gambian governments, his administration supports an independent judiciary. There is confidence in the Gambia that the judiciary is independent and there have been cases that are against government and uh, it was in the courts and the courts 
have taken the, the correct decision and we respected the court's decision. It was not like that before. Even if the court takes decision, still uh, the police will arrest you and put you in jail. But that is not happening now in, in, in the Gambia. I will say even we are the executive, we are the victims today in the Gambia. People abuse us and sometimes they say it's weakness. But I tell them, well, it's the environment where we are coming from. Uh, we have to be very, very tolerant. I think this government is very, very tolerant and we make sure that we respect the rule of law. Talking about the former government abusing the rights of people, you are aware the TRRC came up with these recommendations. What is your stance on it? And when will the people of the Gambia see these recommendations being fully implemented? We have accepted the, the recommendations of the commission. It's unprecedented. I'm not sure, but in record, I've not seen anywhere recommendations have been accepted 95 to 98%. And government have accepted all those recommendations. And now we have started implementing, as, as we speak now, most of the recommendations that we have, people who are recommended that they should not, uh, uh, they should be banned from working, mm -hmm. have always been, uh, already been written to at the highest level, some of our security officers, some of our civilians. We have, we have written to all of them. We have written them from, from government. So we have started implementing, and we will implement it to the latter. Mr. President, you are aware that some civil society groups and human rights defenders are calling on your government to extradite the former president to face justice in the Gambia. How do you respond to them? The recommendation is Germany should face prosecution, and we have accepted the recommendation. There are processes that you have to follow for that travel, and we will make sure that the government will make sure we follow on that processes. We will also work with our partners and see what best we can do to make sure that that happens. But the political will will tell you is 100% plus because we want to make sure that justice is done. South Gambian President Adam Ambaro, he spoke with viewers Peter Clotty on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly in New York. Listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Barton in Washington. Today is Wednesday, September 28. In Sao Tome and Principe, Independent Democratic Action Party leader and the former Prime Minister Patrice Trovoda says preliminary results from Sunday's parliamentary election show that his party won majority of seats. The National Electoral Commission says the ruling coalition movement for the liberation of Sao Tome and Principe and the Social Democratic Party came in second. Voter Celsio Junquera in the Sao Tome and Principe capital, Sao Tome, tells me that the results mean that Trovoda will be the next prime minister. The opposition, led by the Independent Democratic Action Party, won this election with an absolute majority places in parliament. That is with more than 28 deputies. In second place was the MELSTP movement Freedom from San Tome and the Principe that currently govern this country. What does this mean? The absolute majority achieved in this election by the Independent Democratic Action Party led by Patricia Meritrovada means being able to govern without the need to form coalition with other parties 
and to be able to carry out structural reforms in the various sectors of the country. Absolute majority in parliament is important because it leads to governmental political stability and allow the political program of the party vote in the electoral act to be carried out in accordance with the electoral legitimacy achieved at the polls. The leader of the Independent Democracy Action Party, Patrice Emery Trovada, had already tried to govern in coalition in past and also in minority government in past. He recognized weakness and the difficulties in this political option. That is why he asked the electorate for a vote of confidence by an absolute majority. And this electorate, it was given to him on Sunday, 25 September. Can Travoda claim victory even when the Elections Commission has yet to announce the final results? Yes, Patricia Meri Travada and his Independent Democratic Action Party clearly won this election on Sunday, September 25. What is not understood is why the National Electoral Commission, which must publish to the provisional result normally between three and two, five hours after the poll closes, took about a day and a half to publish the provisional result. And he did not say how many deputies the Independent Democratic Action Party got and limited himself to saying to the total number of votes obtained by the ADI. If Traboda wins the election, what would that mean in terms of uh, the next government? Since the Independent Democratic Action Party won this election on Sunday, September 25, with an absolute majority, its leader will be the future Prime Minister in the Democratic Republic of Saint Tome and Prince. Celsio Junquera is a Sao Tome and Principe voter. He was speaking with us from the capital, Sao Tome. The World Health Organization says a highly contagious strain of the deadly Ebola virus in Uganda is causing a quick and significant rise in the number of cases and fatalities. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Uganda health officials declared an outbreak of Ebola a week ago. Five days later, on September 25th, they confirmed the disease, which was caused by the Sudan virus, has infected 36 people, killing 23. It is the first Ebola disease outbreak caused by the Sudan virus in Uganda since 2012. A vaccine is available to protect adults from becoming infected with the more common Zaire strain of Ebola. However, a similar vaccine does not exist for the Sudan virus. Anna Marie Henao Restrepo is WHO co-lead R&D Blueprint for Epidemics in the Health Emergency Program. She says several possible vaccines are under development. We identified that there are three candidate vaccines that have now clinical data, data from humans on safety and immunogenicity that are specifically designed to protect against the Sudan virus and that could be tested in a randomized trial in Uganda if the Ugandan authorities decide to do so. 
The Ebola virus is spread by contact with an infected patient's blood or bodily fluids. The WHO reports the median age of cases in Uganda is 26. 62% are female and 38% are male. The disease has a high fatality rate of 41%. WHO spokeswoman Carla Drysdale says WHO experts are working with Uganda's experienced Ebola control teams to reinforce diagnosis, treatment and preventive measures. While there is no vaccine to treat Sudan Ebola virus, other health measures such as swift detection, community engagement, isolation of patients and early support of care have proven to save lives in similar outbreaks. We must raise awareness in the community that seeking treatment early significantly increases chances of survival. While Uganda is struggling to prevent Ebola from spreading, the Democratic Republic of the Congo Tuesday declared the end of an Ebola outbreak which emerged in North Kivu province six weeks ago. North Kivu, which has a vaccine against the Zaire virus, experienced only one confirmed case of Ebola and no deaths. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. This week, experts from around Africa are meeting in Nairobi for the Joint Africa Gender Statistics Conference. The gathering will look at how to gather balanced gender-specific data that will help inform action plans in the African Union member states. VOS Ruby Kiaman spoke with Maximik Wanato, the UN Women's East and Southern Africa Regional Director, on the sidelines of the week-long conference. He began by explaining the importance of finding ways to get better data. For us, what cannot be counted does not count. And uh, we have realized that women have had difficulties uh, to be counted uh, by statistical offices on the continent. Uh, we have uh, not made a lot of progress in terms of counting women as gender agent. Uh, if it's like counting the number of women, the number of girls, etc., we have made some progress, even, what, even though it was difficult. But the problem is uh, being able to capture data that will make sense politically, that will make sense economically, and that will make sense socially when we are doing uh, policy. We moved from difficulties in terms of goodwill because there has been some progress politically. And even with government that have the goodwill, the political will to do it, it has taken a lot of effort and investment from UN women and the UN in general, as well as the technical offices to be able to grab the issue. And we have a lot of examples of situations where we have made progress, but we still have gaps. Could you share with us some of the examples of countries that have made progress? and also some of the pressing setbacks. During the first phase of our current flagship program that we call Women Counts, a lot of countries have partnered with UN Women in that program. I can talk of um, Kenya, Uganda, Ethiopia, Senegal, Cameroon, Tanzania, where the production of data, the accessibility of data, and the use of data have had some jump. And we have uh, now, with the availability of those information, now how do we download them into policy-making processes? And some progress has been done. And where we made progress, it has been when we have had like a comprehensive approach, an integrated approach, where people have seen 
the interest of integrating gender data in the whole progress, not just of women, but the progress of the whole country. How is it, for instance, that information on gender-based violence, in terms of the costs and the opportunity costs, have drawn the attention of the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of Planning, if in a country like Uganda you are spending 77 billion in addressing gender-based violence, then the Ministry of Finance say, what can that money do if it doesn't go into gender-based violence? That's how you start putting information on the table to inform policy. What we have seen in a lot of countries is like local government, national government, and even regional bodies that the African Union now engaged into more refined and accurate policy making based on evidence that we gather. What do you expect to come out of the conference that is happening in Nairobi this week? What we are promoting in this conference and that is going to continue is the role of women and girls themselves in the co-creation of gender data. You have seen in the COVID period the problems that we have had with uh, generating data. Let me give you the example of the gender-based violence. Our initial system of capturing gender-based violence was based on reporting. Either a family member that comes and witness and reports, or women using the phone when the husband is at work. So during COVID and confinement, we have seen men sitting by the phone so that when women want to call and report on possibility of violence, it's a problem. So the same thing in collecting data. Women don't have phones. So when we are using uh, phone-based interview or phone-based uh, collection of data, number one, we don't reach uh, as many women as we want. Number two, when we reach them, it's often through the phone of their husband, and then what they can say is limited. Maximic Winato, the regional director of Eastern Southern Africa at UN Women, speaking with viewers Ruben Kiyama from Nairobi. Last Friday, municipal councillors elected their mayors in the Republic of the Congo for the country's economic capital, Pointe Noire. Its new leader is Evelyn Chichel. She is the first woman to occupy this position since the creation of the city, and the population has high hopes for her leadership. Rosie Pio has this report from Brazzaville. Pointe Noire now has its head, a woman to direct its destiny. Evelyn Chichel, Bonne Poiti, beat Jean-François Kando in the polls. Both are members of the Congolese Labour Party. She's the first woman to lead the municipal council of the coastal city of over one million people, about a quarter of the country's population. Some say Chichel will face several challenges. Esire Minkala lives in the Paka district, located on the outskirts of the city. C'est vraiment une première qu'une femme soit à la tête d'une grande ville comme Pointe-Noire. She says that the city is very dirty and it will be a challenge for Chichel to make over the city so it again be called Ponton the Beautiful, the country's most attractive city. She says that the new mayor should work on training women, many of whom have dropped out of school for various reasons, and introduce training that will help young girls blossom and learn how to become financially secure. 
Smith is a young teacher at a private primary school in Central Point Noir. For him, the advent of a woman at the head of the city is commentable, despite the problem that awaits her. He says there are great challenges like the lack of decent roads. He says that the new mayor should work to clean up the city as it doesn't look like an economic city, which doesn't look like a worthy center of the economy. She must improve public safety because there is a lot of crime. For VOA News, I'm Rosie Piot in Brazzaville. And that's it for this Wednesday, September 20th edition of Daybreak Africa. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Butter in Washington wishing you will have a wonderful day. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and our panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including outraged protests, a fearful exodus, and acts of violence continue across Russia days after President Vladimir Putin announced a partial mobilization to call hundreds of thousands of reservists to fight in Ukraine. We'll examine this and more on Issues in the News this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America.